Hello listeners, Kristen Walker here. Dr. Peter Vermeulen joins us today. He is the keynote speaker of 2020's Converge Autism Conference by Springbrook Autism Behavioral. He's the founder and director of Autism in Context, the chief editor of Sterk in Autism, which is a bi-monthly magazine of Autism Central. Today we cover many topics. Peter is fascinating. But we stay centered around theory of mind. This is one of my all-time favorite guests to date. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily. I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me. Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health, or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) So where are you? uh, Where are you calling in? I know you're not calling in. You're using a mic and a speaker, but um, where are you reaching us from? today um i'm sitting here in belgium where it's uh, evening and quite hot for the time of the year it's mm-hmm. summer here it's summer here too and we're breaking records with the heat it's not been fun no well it's the same over here i think there's definitely something going wrong with the climate um yeah yes but you know climate change doesn't exist wink wink um, uh, well, lately it it, it <laughs> has started to exist. I since believe this that it week, does. since would, this week, there's see. some concern about the climate. <laughs> yes, as there should be. Uh, so, tell our listeners, and they heard a little bit about your background, but why is this, uh, you know, this work and your work with autism, your life's work, or one of the? I'm sure you do many other things, but um, but give our well, listeners I, the history. Of course, I do many other things, but I must say that. Um, um, autism is a little bit like a bug. Uh, <laughs> so uh, actually, I did not choose for autism. Um, my my start of my career in autism is uh, rather very plain, I, I should say. Um, I was looking for a job. I got a phone call from a professor at university and said they're looking for someone at the Parental Society, the National Autistic Society in Flanders, part of Belgium. Mm-hmm. And I applied for the job and I got it, but I had no idea what autism was. So the first day of my training, I had to take care of a, a boy with autism who was nonverbal. And he didn't understand me, but I didn't understand him. And that was the start of a quest that has never ended. I wanted to understand 
how autistic people, how they experience the world. And the, well, until now, I, I think I have found some answers to some questions, but who am I to say that I understand autism? I think I understand bits and pieces like most of us. Right, right, exactly. No, no one knows all of the answers. This is no, you know, steady moving forward. So what's kept you, you know, to stay involved in this field? Well, what, what mainly kept me in the field was the, the observation that although there's a lot of research uh, into autism, a lot of high-tech research nowadays, uh, biological, neurobiological, um, what I still was looking for is what can we do to give autistic people just like the rest of people a good life? Because basically I think that although an autistic brain is running on a different processor, I think the basic needs are exactly the same as for every human being. And until now, I think we still have a long way to go to find the keys to make autistic people thrive in life. Right, exactly. In terms of um, how this has affected you personally, was there a family member or a friend? Um, that's, that's a very strange story. So I, I got involved in autism, um, let's say, end of the 80s. Uh, I was trained by the people from Teach North Carolina in 87. Um, and, but until that moment, I thought, well, autism, that's, well, that's my profession in no life. Until the moment that my brother, uh, who's seven years younger, he got children. He has four. And two of them have an autism diagnosis. Mm. Um, so I'm the uncle also of two grown-ups by, by now. Um, and then my wife's uh, sister, uh, she was married to um, a husband who got a very late diagnosis of Asperger's syndrome. So suddenly autism was not just a professional thing anymore. It was also a personal thing and a family thing. And you found out about this after you started working in the field? Yes, yes, yes. That's and one so of the difficult things, yeah, yeah. And one of the difficult things was that I, I was, well, I was reluctant to get involved in the diagnosis of both my nephew, my niece, and my brother-in-law, because I thought I cannot diagnose them. I, I, I should not be a professional to them. I should be their brother-in-law or their, their uncle. Um, on the other hand, of course, the whole family looked at me because they knew I had the knowledge. Right. Um, so that was a kind of, a, well, a difficult balance to find. Um, the balance between being an uncle, but also being an uncle who seems to know something about autism. It's, it's fascinating how that works, isn't it? As soon as my yes. family found out that I do a show about mental health, all of a sudden I get all the calls yes mental health related and i have to remind them i'm not actually a counselor you understand that right <laughs> yes yes and also for instance with my my nephew with autism when he was a small child i probably did a lot of things that if i was looking at myself as an autism professional i would have said mm -mm, peter that's not very autism friendly um but on the other hand i think it's it's okay to be an uncle who makes mistakes and, and that's one of the advices that I give to parents and professionals. Okay, it's very important to become as autism friendly as much as possible. But you know what? 
uh, you can make mistakes. And one of the things that I noticed in autistic people is that they always forgive you for the mistakes you make. Uh, Let's talk more about that, okay? Because I've noticed that as well. And um, just give me, give me more context around that statement. Well, I, I can give you a very technical explanation that starts with the deficits in episodic memory, um, which means that autistic people, their memory works different. Um, and rather than a movie where one scene is connected to another one in episodes, like from TV series, um, their life is more like um, a photo book. And if you turn the page, it's over and you can start on a new page that has some negative consequences. For instance, we sometimes see that autistic people uh, sometimes make the same mistake over and over again, mm. as if they don't learn as much as non-autistics from their experiences. But it has a positive side as well, namely that if you as a parent or a professional make a mistake and, they, and the page is turned because it's the next day, you can start on a new sheet. Mm. So nothing, nothing is only negative. Everything has a flip side, I think. That's so, that's fascinating. I've noticed that as well. And do you think that it's active forgiveness because they know that this is going on or this is just a, a you know, result of how their brain works? I think it's both because um, I've met not many autistic people who really have a negative attitude towards other people, um, which is astonishing if you see how much stress they get from uh, social interaction with, with other people. It's, it's amazing how much they continue to give people around them new chances. So there must be some active forgiveness in there as well. Mm, some you know, genetic correlate or brain functioning that maybe neurotypicals don't, you know, have or at least have in as much abundance. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. think they're, too, they're also more straightforward. So they're the ones who will tell you that you do something that is not okay, but the moment you see, okay, this was indeed not okay, they can sometimes they even have the name to be very blunt. Right. Uh, in their remarks, uh, they don't mean bad. I think they, they don't know how to, to wrap it up, uh, their, their negative feedback. But once they've said it, and you try again, and you try differently, you get all the chances you, you get, so you can make up for it. And, and then it, that's real honest. Yeah. I don't think they do it to, to please us, because that would require a lot of theory of mind. Which is again something that is, let's say, not the biggest talent of autistic people. Hmm. Not a theory, a theory of mind. Okay, so let's talk about that in terms of um, we we had a wonderful guest that came on and did a show about how uh, you know people will be accused of being dangerous or. Um, you know, being extremely narcissistic or something like that. Um, and you actually find out that, you know, they know they're autistic. And she did a show mm -hmm. about the difference between those two things. And uh, I can see where people make the comparison. Sometimes yeah. I've actually made the mistake, a grave mistake, unfortunately, of, and it's just because I have so much uh, 
access to the world of autism, obviously through the show and um, being in the mental health field. But uh, it was interesting. I, I took someone's very negative behavior um, in some ways as, okay, well, possibly they're on the spectrum. And I learned the hard way mm. that that was a horrible um, assumption of mine gone in the wrong direction. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it was nice to, you know, kind of clear those things up because that ability to be manipulative in a way that someone with narcissism, you know, with we're yeah. talking when it becomes a personality disorder, that ability to be so manipulative does not seem to be something that someone with autism is as capable of or even capable of doing. Am I correct yeah, on that? It, it, you're very correct. It's completely incompatible with how an autistic brain works. Um, because we do know that autistic people find it very hard to find out what other people think and feel and want. And in order to be manipulative, you need to know that right. so that you can find a weak spot in another person's uh, personality or another person's wishes and, 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 and thoughts. But you know, this theory of mind thing works two ways. Uh, what you just told me is proof of your lack of theory of mind for the autistic mind mm -hmm. before you had knowledge about autism. Right. So we are often complaining about autistic people lacking theory of the neurotypical mind, but I think a lot of neurotypicals lack a lot of autistic mind, theory of autistic mind. Absolutely. Uh, so the misunderstandings <laughs> work both ways. And when we say, or when we assume that autistic people are manipulative or narcissistic, that's clearly a proof of a lack of theory of autistic mind to me. Absolutely. Um, however, it can be, but that's the difference between narcissistic and egocentric what we often see is that, and maybe we'll talk about it later, my concept of context blindness, is that because autistic people sometimes are blind for a context, they can be blind for the effects of their behavior on another person. But, but this is just a matter of not knowing. The moment they know what the effects of their behavior are, they're the first ones to apologize and to even um, say, I'm so very sorry, I did not know this. this was... Uh, having this effect on you. So that's hardly narcissistic, is it? Exactly, exactly. And and actually getting a narcissist to apologize is um, like getting you know, <laughs> yes. a lion to not go after deer. And, and that's also true for, <laughs> for what, yeah, what you also often hear, and more in your country than, than in ours here, is the link between uh, psychopaths and autism uh, and crimes and autism. You know, again... I think this, this requires so much theory of mind that autistic people lack. And, and it's a big misunderstanding that autistic people lack empathy. Yes. You know, there's two aspects of empathy. There's a cognitive aspect, and that's knowing what another person feels and thinks and so on. But there's also the affective component. And that means when you feel sad, I feel a little bit sad as well. And... Based on research, we know that there is no issue whatsoever with the affective empathy in autism. That means that, that if a person with autism knows you're not feeling well, they kind of resonate with that and, and they, they, they feel sorry about that and, and they, they won't have joy 
if you feel bad. Mm-hmm. And that's the difference between a psychopath and autistic people. The difference is that a psychopath has perfect cognitive empathy. He or she knows what other people feel, but they don't care about it. Right. While autistic people often don't know, but the moment they know, they care about it. Absolutely. I think, too, the, the ability to be excited about things is amazing as well. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. genuine excitement, whereas... It, it's often, you know, yeah. and that's the one thing, if you ask me what kept you in the field, one of the things that kept me in the field is the authenticity of autistic yes. people. Yes, and that you don't get with a narcissist. It's It was no. fascinating to me when I started to put the pieces together. And it, it was things I learned, obviously, from, you know, um, knowing more about autism, but... Uh, what I picked up on was this particular person would say things like, well, I was plotting the whole time. Uh, Every time that I'm with you, I'm plotting on how I can get you to do what I want, which is to make them a star, you know, since I host multiple radio shows. And, and that was the first clue into, "Ah, you know what, my good friends that are, you know, are autistic they don't plot. They don't have the nope. ability to do that. And that's nope. when I went, okay, this person is not on the spectrum in any way. <laughs> so it, it was fascinating. And, you know, you're right about that. Psychopaths know exactly nope. know exactly what they're doing. That's part of the what they get joy about. For them, that's joy exactly. causing others pain. Someone with autism does not take joy in causing other people pain. No, not at all. Not at all. Do you think it's because of uh, just the way that the brain works with someone with autism that they those particular um, neurons won't fire in that way where they would or or you know whatever it is? I'm not a scientist, so you'll have to correct me. But um, they just aren't capable of of going off in those directions because of the autism. Yes, I think so. Um, you know. Um all the things that we have framed as deficits in in the autistic brain, uh, again, we can frame the same things also in a more positive way. Um, So you could say sometimes they lack theory of mind. Well, you could also say they are more genuine Mm -hmm. because they do not, you know, that's what we sometimes see that most of us, neurotypicals, the moment we, we close our front door behind us, we start playing a play in front of a public. Mm-hmm. We constantly think about what do other people think about us. In persona. Uh, yeah. So in that way, why did we? Why did we develop such a cognitive ability as theory of mind? Not because we we're interested in what other people think and feel, because we are interested in how other people feel about us and what mm. other people think about us. So actually, the, the whole area of social skills started from a very egocentric uh, concern, namely, what do other people think about me? I want other people to be positive about me. And that's what sometimes, well, autistic people, they just do what they do, and they sometimes miss this audience. You can call that a deficit. On the other hand, they are more genuine than most people. I'll tell you, my friends that are autistic, I... I call them when I want an honest answer about something. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, um, and, and that's so nice because they they don't say something. Well, of course, some have learned the social skills and they mm-hmm. know it's important to please other people. So there are some learned skills as well. But, you know, indeed, when 
autistic people when they give feedback to me they they are very straightforward in their comments mm -hmm. and sometimes i'm i feel a little bit hurt but i know it's not their intention to hurt me they are just being very honest and neurotypicals are not very good at coping with honest comments uh, but at least i know what i need to know because oh, other I, people yeah. other people will kind of be nice to me and don't say what they actually think oh my gosh i had this happen recently where uh, we were doing um, some work um, on film, um, and we just started doing that. We were, you know, we do webcasts and things like that. And mm -hmm. I knew things were not going well. I just knew they weren't going well. But I couldn't get anybody behind, you know, a part of the crew to be honest and tell me what's not going well. What do we need to change? What should be done differently? It was utterly fascinating. So I took some of the footage that we could get our hands on. Um, and I sent it to two friends that are autistic. And I said, okay, will you please? And one of them, you know, he has, he got his PhD at 23. So, you know, this is, uh, mm -hmm. and he'll tell me, yeah, you, you've gotten kind of fat. <laughs> he'll just, he just flat out tells me, you've been <laughs> you know, and I'm like, and it's really like, <gasps> but um, now I, I go, okay, it doesn't bother me at all. I know he's not doing it to be mean and he's right. No. If he says it, no. it's because I have. So it's, it's funny. Um, but I had them watch this um, footage and it was fascinating and listen to some shows because we, I have them listen to shows too. And I'll tell them, please give me your feedback. I don't even have to say, give me your, tell me the truth. I don't no. have to say that where I do with other people. They said, well, this is wrong. This person looks tired. Uh, this looks rushed. You look exhausted. You know, yeah. you, how many things were you doing in one day, Kristen? That's a lot to do in one day, don't you think? And especially considering the topics you talk about. I mean, they, they gave me such great feedback. And I went, yeah. ah, thank you. That's what I needed. That's what I, you know, and so they're my go-to people every time when it comes to certain things. Now, other things, if I go to them, they look at me like, I don't even know what you're talking about. And that's when I have to go to other places. Yeah. yeah. You know, that reminds me, we have um, at, at, I work both for Autism Central and Autism in Context. The last one is my own company, but, but at Autism Central, we do uh, activities and courses for adults. And one of our courses that we have is about lying. And autistic people, they don't understand why people lie. They say, what's, what's the use? Yeah. Um, and then we say, well, there's also something like white lies. You don't want to offend someone. And they say, but why don't you tell the truth? It's the most honest thing. Mm -hmm. and, and they seem to have, well, they say we can lie if we, some of us can um, but we don't see the point of it. If if you're gained weight, well, you gained weight. Why 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 ignore it? You better right. know it. <laughs> right. Um, he wasn't even that, saying it with judgment. He was just saying, "No, you've you've gained weight." It oh no, it's not a judgment. Uh, yeah. No, autistic people they don't judge that easily. What they do is they describe what they see and hear, so mm -hmm. they are actually reporting rather than judging. Exactly. That's why I feel so safe. I, I just interviewed a young woman who, um, her name is Madonna, and she uh, she does all of these incredible things. She's been on this show. Um, she works in a museum. She just she does 
she writes incredible poetry and satire and so on. She's fantastic. And uh, I love conversations with her as well. But one of the things she described is she does have some, uh, you know, more ability to understand a social construct. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd say she's high functioning autism and uh, it's, but it's so exhausting. We talked about that on a show. It's so exhausting for her to have to do that. And when she's with me and other people like me that understand this, that aren't autistic, she can relax more because she knows we're not expecting that of her, but in the general public, it's so exhausting to have to fit into all of that. Um, social context that's yeah. quote unquote acceptable, and all these social rules that don't make sense mm-hmm. to to people who have autism. Right, smile. At but something. of course, who who, who makes sense, mm-hmm. but makes sense from a neurotypical point of view. Right. Uh, the one thing that I thought was interesting was, well, I don't. If someone says something very rude, that anyone would think is rude, unless they're you know they can't hear and they can't see, but someone with autism uh, would more likely, they're not going to smile about that. They're not going to smile about something because it doesn't require a smile where a neurotypical would put the face on that we do because we've learned, you know, it's, it's a, a lying without words. I don't know. I'm, ma- I'm making up some horrible statement that we'll edit out here. But anyway, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> mm, yes, yes, yes. I recognize it. <laughs> <laughs> so that would that understands why you'd stay in the field for so long. It's got to be utterly fascinating to see how this plays out. What have you seen in terms of developments, um, especially you know being not in America? There's different context different social constructs um, based on the European way of life as opposed to America. What have you kind of seen in terms of the acceptance of that kind of a diagnosis and understanding and society and with police departments and things like that? Well, I think we, we, there's a big difference now compared to the eighties when I started, I think there is overall um, quite a lot of autism awareness in society um, I think there's also, in general, a more positive attitude than, than, let's say, 30 years ago. However, a lot of things are still on the level of lip service, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, that means people talk in a more positive way about autism. Um, it's even like fashionable nowadays to talk about autistic strengths and autistic talents. But yet, if, we, if I look at, for instance, the number of adults on the spectrum who have a job, then I'm still shocked to see that so few of them do have a job. So right. as a society, I think we are now at the point where we have to put the words, we, we have to put them into deeds now. Right. Um, because there's, there's autism awareness. There's even, I must say, um, if you ask people in the street, what do you know about autism? I think the description will technically be not perfect, but at least it will be a good one. Um, Also because, well, nowadays almost everybody knows someone with autism. So in that way, the knowledge is widespread. But yet as a society, and I can only speak for Europe here, for the different countries, um, we still not succeed in translating that knowledge into strategies to make autistic people thrive 
Um, right. For instance, when it comes to inclusion in education, um, there's now in September the next Autism Europe conference, um, and I run a session on inclusion. There's still so many kids with autism who are going to special schools, and in one way, I understand that because there, the knowledge is there, the, the the strategies are there, but I I think why do we have to send them to special schools? Maybe for a minority that will always be necessary, but I think more children with autism would benefit from from mainstream and from inclusion. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a bit strange that we send autistic children to special schools to teach them social skills. <laughs> Um, and what do they learn there in the social skills training? They learn to socialize with other autistic children, which is okay. Right. But that doesn't mean they are able to cope with neurotypical peers. <laughs> exactly. And it reduces the benefit to neurotypical peers because then they're not exactly, exactly. To, hey, they're because it's a two, people. it's again, like with the theory of mind, it's a two way process. How can neurotypical peers of autistic children ever learn? to involve autistic children in, for instance, their their games, if autistic children are being sent to special schools all the time. Right. Or to separate therapy groups. Um, You know, there too, I think that that there's not only autistic children who would benefit from some social skills training. So why don't we make these these groups where, where every child can join if he or she thinks, well, I could learn something, I could pick up something there. And of course, the knowledge about autism should be there. Right. Um, and that's not yet, well, a big success in every mainstream school. I know that. But we're making progress. So actually, I'm quite positive. Good, good. I always thought it was fascinating, too, with schools, since I, I did a lot of um, volunteer work in schools with um, therapy dogs. And I'd go to the classrooms, the special classrooms, and the things that the kids were taught, which you know, most of the kids in those classrooms were on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Um, The things that they were taught, I thought this stuff should be taught in the other classrooms. And it's not about respecting boundaries about uh, it just, it was just amazing about, um, you know, reading facial cues and things like that. The other kids need to learn how to do that too. (laughs) But I think, you know, uh, to be honest, none of us is born with the social skills we have as adults. Exactly. So it's a learning process and that involves teaching. And why would the teaching be so different? Well, the the style maybe can be a little bit different, but the content is not different. Right. Exactly. Exactly. But I tell you, when I would visit a neurotypical classroom, if I didn't show up because, you know, one of my dogs hurt their paw or some reason, um, you know, okay, fine, move on. Man, it was a big deal if I didn't, mm-hmm. if I couldn't come because that was marked on the calendar. The kids were expecting me. Why didn't yeah. you come? I was very upset. I wore this t-shirt. <laughs> so, I loved it though. The enthusiasm yeah. was always incredible. Well, talk about um, just as we, you know, work into closing the show, what are you, you know, what are you continuing to do in your work in terms of, you know, the advancement of awareness and um, just your work in general in this field? Well, there's, there's two things I'm actually doing right now. And one is um, um, 
there's a lot of recent findings about the human brain that um, could have quite big consequences for some of the strategies that we use uh, for autistic people. Um, and what I'm trying to do is to, to translate those recent findings about the human brain to autism. For instance, one of the things we've discovered, not we, but scientists have discovered, is that uh, the brain is not working like a computer, which means it doesn't receive information from the senses and then processes it and then reacts. It predicts the sensory inputs. That means that this could have consequences for what we do with autistic children around sensory issues because it's not just about the stimuli in the environment. It's also much about predictability. Um, that means taking away sounds is not always necessary. It's sometimes just a matter of making things more predictable. If you know, for instance, that's what, what Temple Grandin wrote in one of her books, that fireworks are sometimes a big issue for autistic children, but not when they know they're going to expect the firework. Exactly. And that's also why some autistic children who are known to be hypersensitive to sound make a lot of noise themselves because the noise is then predictable. Right. So that's one area. And the other area, which is the one that I put most energy in right now, is the whole area of happiness in autism. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, I think that it's time to change the focus from a lack of well-being in autism to how can we promote well-being in autism. Just as an example, again, um, there's now questionnaires and, and tests to, let's say, diagnose and assess the sensory issues in autism, asking what kind of sounds and lights are are difficult for an autistic child i would i would make kind of a u-turn and i would like to and i have developed such a questionnaire it's named the good feeling questionnaire and you can find it on my website in, in seven or eight different languages rather than asking what kind of stimuli are disturbing or even stressful or even hurtful for an autistic person, we should start asking questions like, what kind of noise do you like? What kind of light do you like? Mm. Uh, What kind of textures do you like in food? And in what kind of clothes do you like? So it's, I think it's time to take a U-term and have this more positive approach towards autism. And rather than, than looking into all the deficits and the problems and the issues, looking at strengths, at interests, at sensory preferences, um, a more positive approach. That's what I'm really would like to see. Fantastic. Well, I will be the first one to sign up to read that <laughs> research, that book, whatever it is um, it's going to turn into. Tell our listeners where they can find out more about you and your work. Well, there's two places. Um, of there's the the website of Autism Central. That's where I work half time. Um, that's in Flemish or Dutch, but there's Google Translate now. Um, but I also have my personal website um, named Autism in Context. Um, it's very easy to find my name, and then you do dot be at the end for Belgium. And there people can see, um, amongst others, some of the tools that I develop, 
and that are available for free. Uh, but they can also see what I'm currently working at and where I present about those things. Absolutely. And listeners, you can, you can actually just Google autism in context and the website comes right up. But um, if you want to go you know, directly there, you can go to www.petervermeulen.be. I highly, highly recommend you visit this website. Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show. It was a real honor. <laughs> it was a real honor. Yeah, I'm a little shrimp from Belgium, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we found you. Um, we, we follow as much as we can out there. And it's been interesting uh, trying to get guests for this show, Converge Autism Radio. Trying to get guests in the summer has been so difficult you know for obvious reasons people are on vacation mm. so um when uh when my assistant said hey this wonderful man is coming on i went oh my gosh in the summer fantastic <laughs> <laughs> but again thank you for coming on and listeners thank okay. you for <laughs> thank you for tuning in to another episode of springbrook's converge autism radio I know, I know, no one likes commercials, but seriously, folks, without the help from these organizations, we could not stay on the air. Please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous, and they're just good people. And also MyGenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, CopeNotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Sometimes I'm passive aggressive, but never without good intentions. I heat up and act on my emotions. Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you I can fight it. Good boy.